Welcome to Paradigm Shift, the podcast about the intersection of business and law. By changing yourself, you can change your business. Now, here's your host, Christina Martini. Welcome to Paradigm Shift. My name is Christina Martini, and I am your host as we explore the intersection of business and law. Several months ago, we spoke with an expert in the cyber insurance space who spoke with us about the truth and myth of managing cybersecurity risk. We are now picking up on that discussion and delving more deeply into frameworks and solutions for tackling cybersecurity threats. It promises to be another thought-provoking discussion. It is my pleasure to welcome Libby Bennett to the show. Libby is currently the president of Cybersecure Work, Inc., a cybersecurity, privacy, and insurance consulting practice located in Maryland. She has been in the insurance and reinsurance industry for over 30 years. Libby spent time at Beasley Insurance Group as the U.S. lead treaty underwriter for specialty lines products, including cyber liability. Prior to that, she held various senior treaty underwriting positions, managing professional lines, employment practices, and cyber liability with General Reinsurance, Inc., a Berkshire Hathaway company. She has also worked for Zurich, in primary underwriting of various property and casualty products. In the mid-1990s, Libby became a licensed Maryland attorney and worked in private practice. She served as chair of the Emerging Issues Committee of the Torts and Insurance Practice Section of the ABA. She is a member of the Minnesota Lawyers Mutual Board of Directors. Through the International Association of Privacy Professionals, Libby is a certified information privacy professional and certified as a privacy information manager. It is my pleasure to welcome Libby Bennett back to the show. Oh, it's great to be here, Christina. Thanks for having me. So Libby, we talked a few months ago about various aspects of cybersecurity and cyber insurance, and we had a really great conversation. And I think as we delved into the topic further, we realized that there was a lot more ground to cover. So we're going to be chatting again to try to get to some of the additional facets of this topic that we were not able to cover last time. So to uh, set that backdrop, why don't we start by seeing if there are any statistics or information that you could provide just to give our listeners some context about the scope of the cybersecurity problem that businesses face today? Yeah, great, great question. There are some very, very interesting statistics. There's a professor from England who has done a very extensive research project on cybercrime and the cybercrime economy. And he published his paper called Into the Web of Profit, Understanding the Growth of the Cybercrime Economy. And what he discovered in his research is that as of 2017, which was the time period he was doing this research, that cybercrime generated at least $1.5 trillion in revenues worldwide to criminals. Wow. I mean, I think your listeners might be staggered by that piece of information. I know I was. And to break that down a little bit about what is meant by cybercrime, we're talking about things like illicit or illegal online markets. There is an estimate of around $860 billion of revenue being generated in that arena. Trade secrets and intellectual property theft 
is estimated around $500 billion. Beta trading is estimated to be at $160 billion. Crime as a service, cyber crimeware as a service, $1.6 billion. So what that means is that cyber criminals, in just that example, cyber criminals have created software packages that people can buy online and use to attack businesses around the world. And those entrepreneurs, criminal entrepreneurs, made $1.6 billion in selling that software. That's an example. And then finally, they estimate that ransomware costs as much as $1 billion in terms of criminal revenue being generated. This is significant because we don't think of ourselves as being in a high crime district. No, we don't. We go to work, we have see our friends, we know what we have our clients, and and we don't realize that if you pull back the electronic curtain, that this is a global enterprise, not local, it's global, and people are making real money on this. And as a result, there's an enormous incentive from one set of threat actors to use cybercrime, whether it's feeding nation states where we might have sanctions against them or, you know, criminal elements or what have you, you know, they're making a lot of money on this. And so I think it's important for your listeners to have that context. They use a number of different techniques to achieve their objective. We mentioned software as a service, but, you know, they can do the hacking, the loof phishing. They basically take what were traditional criminal techniques of burglary or deceptive callers or, you know, fraud, and they've just put it online. And in fact, made it easier because they can send this out to the entire world and, you know, hit companies that may be vulnerable. So that's sort of one aspect of, of what we're seeing. There are also a number of industry sources of information. So Verizon puts out a publication about the cost of cyber events. IBM Security has put out a piece. The Poneman has put out a study. And what each of these entities do is they try and measure. In this case, they're measuring not just criminal activity, but any other kind of activity. They're kind of looking at it from the the individual company's perspective and what are the losses that happen if they happen to be subject to a data breach event. And there's a very interesting study that IBM Security has put out this fall, breaking down kind of the, the four cost centers of what drive losses when there's been a cyber breach. And those four areas are detection and what they call escalation or reporting, if you will, to the appropriate regulator. So if you, if you have breached, if you have in fact violated the, the state or federal law and require notification, there's that whole element. So detecting what the issue is and then notifying the regulator. There's the notification requirements, which if you have violated the law, they, you will be required, the company will be required to notify its customers and clients whose data has been compromised. There's the whole post-data breach response piece, which could involve public relations and, you know, if there needs to be any reparations or redress to the clients or the people injured, there's that element of it. And finally, lost business, which are really activities associated with, you know, revenue loss or business disruption or system downtime or losing new customers because of the bad publicity of a breach. 
So in this IBM security study, their key finding was, on average, the loss of business to firms who've had a breach is about $1.42 million. Okay. Interesting. Now, that obviously is going to vary, right? If you're a target, that number is going to be much bigger. And if you're a small business, it's going to be smaller. But, I, but on average, when they looked across all the industry sizes, this, is, this was the number that you know, they said was on average what was lost. Do you have any sense as to how many businesses, like I, th- I think our listeners would be interested to hear how many businesses, like maybe on a yearly basis, are impacted by some sort of cyber event? Yeah, that's a great question. That is such a great question because there's two dimensions to that question. Um, we do have statistics from the various state regulators. If a company reports to their regulator that they've had a, an incident or breach, those state regulators will post the statistics on their state. So, for example, I'm in the state of Maryland. If you were to go to uh, Maryland website for data losses, you will get you'll get the names of the companies, how many records were impacted, you know, and what they did about it. So you can find out that information if they did report it. But what we suspect is going on is that either companies do not know that they've been breached because they don't have a system in place to identify whether they've been penetrated or not. Or they have been breached and they just dealt with it and they've not reported it. So I think we have a couple of different dimensions to that question going on. So would you say that it's safe to say that thousands of businesses are impacted a year? Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. There are definitely thousands of businesses impacted. And if we were to take a look at, I mean, we, when we spoke last, we discussed the evolution of the internet and cyber events and how people plan and ensure for those types of events. If you were to take a look at a snapshot over the last 12 to 18 months of how cyber breaches and events have evolved, what would you say has become the greatest type of threat in the last 12 to 18 months from a cyber perspective? Mm -hmm. So in this past fall, uh, both Beasley and Chubb reported on their claim activity, and both of those entities reported a marked increase in cyber extortion. And and what does that look like? I mean, I think folks probably have a pretty good intuitive sense as to what cyber extortion looks like, but can you explain to our listeners what you mean by that? Sure. So you receive an email, uh, typically it comes in through an email. It might look like you're getting a, a notice from your bank or your insurance company or whatever, or could be coming from somebody inside the organization. So the email looks like it's a legitimate email and you open it up and it asks you to click on a link. And when you do that, it, it releases malware into the system where you'll get a notification from the, the entity extorting the company that your system has been locked up and you'll need to pay a ransom in order to get your files released. They lock up uh, the files through encryption and they have the key. You don't have the key. So unless you have some kind of backup in your company of the files that get encrypted, then the company has a very difficult decision to make about whether or not it's going to pay the ransom and hope it gets its files back or, you know, what it's going to do. And so that's kind of how the, the extortion gets presented. Now, what they're seeing in this escalation is some of the entities that are sending out these extortion events are morphing their tactics and 
are actually destroying the records. In other words, they're not giving the key to unencrypt the files. So it's such a dangerous thing for a company because unless, like I said, you have backups where you can restore your system um, with those files, you know, you, your whole business can be at risk. And for a small business, that means you're out of business. You know, if you don't have your records, you may be out of business. That's a really important point that you just made. And also it's interesting to hear how you're seeing these events evolve. I can tell you from the perspective of my practice, I have a number of clients where there's an intersection between cybersecurity and IP and what I do in my practice. For example, I have a number of clients who have been wrestling with third parties who register domain names that either incorporate their company name or a typo squatted version. And this has been going on for many years, but the purpose for which people who are up to no good register these domain names has evolved over time. Now they're using it to perpetrate financial frauds. And what they do is they use those domain names to set up email capabilities through those domain names. And what they do is they send out emails sometimes to the clients of the clients that I work with. And the whole purpose is to tell them like the bank, the bank account information has changed to redirect funds that would ordinarily go to the client's bank account. They're making it look as if these emails are coming from the C-suite of my clients and they make the emails look like they're from the client when actually they're the fraudsters who are behind it. And so the sophistication with which people are perpetrating these frauds continues to evolve. And there really is a need for a partnership. And this is a segue into our next question, but there's a real need for a partnership between legal and, for example, information security within a company. They have to work together because these folks move much faster than they used to as well. And as you know, probably better than anybody, Libby, that by the time that these sort of, I guess, infringements and violations occur and are discovered, they've often moved on to their next victim. Oh, yeah, I completely agree with you. And that whole, you know, business email compromise and the, or the social engineering where they're, you know, fraudulently representing somebody who might be one of your clients is that whole area of crime is a real mess in the insurance industry because the crime writers really don't want to write this risk. The cyber underwriters are putting some limited crime covers in. So that whole subject area means that, you know, businesses are effectively self-insuring. And so it's really important for your right for legal advisors and accounting advisors and whatever to be, you know, um, aware of the issues to, to try and counsel their clients around this subject because they may not be able to lay the risk off to the insurance industry. So this is a segue into my next question, and it's a simple question, but I'm sure it's got a lot of layers to it. Ultimately, based on your experience and what you've seen with clients of yours over the years, who is responsible for cybersecurity in a company and making sure that a company is well-positioned to address all of the threats that exist in the market today? Yeah, again, you know, that's a really good question. I think what I'd have to say to you is it's a team 
This is a team effort. It requires board of directors, members of the board, for example, to understand that this is an issue that requires board level focus. Not exclusively, obviously, but it's an important piece in the overall governance of a company. So board members need to understand. They need to understand the legal risks of the company. They need to understand the technological risks to the company. And they need to have some insights into, you know, risk-based budgeting, if you will. What is the risk and what are the trades you're willing to make for the management of that organization? Of course, senior managers, uh, senior managers need to understand this. And I think there was a 60 minutes piece, I don't know, maybe four weeks ago, where two municipalities had been hacked and they were interviewing the directors of those, those two municipalities. And the one was a municipality of about 12,000 people, so small, small municipality. And the interview showed the director basically saying, well, why would anyone ever want to come after you know, somebody like us? And of course, the point is, is this is all electronic. They're maybe not targeting you specifically. So this is like, that was a level of, you know, that senior leader didn't understand what the issues were. So we need our senior management to be knowledgeable about this. The law department, you mentioned the, the partnership with the, the lawyers and the security firms or the security support of a company. You know, whether the law department's internal or it's outsourced or what have you, that is such a critical relationship because we all do different things and we all touch a different part of the overall structure that having that, you know, high level communication is very, very important. I would include the HR department because, of course, they're the ones who are going to be very instrumental in handling employee training on this subject, along with the IT department, who, of course, have to make sure that we can have accessible access to our systems when we need it and be able to be sure that we can have confidence around the records that are there and that type of thing. And if you have any outsourced partners, so let's say you, you take some aspect of your business and you put it on the cloud. Well, the cloud is just somebody else's computer. <laughs> You're basically taking your stuff and put it on somebody else's computer. Well, they make mistakes and they get packed, they get breached. So you need that outsourced partner in that example to be part of your overall cybersecurity for your company. Managed service providers, for a lot of small businesses, they outsource their IT department or aspects of their IT department to what's called managed service providers. While a lot of those managed service providers, they may or may not offer security services, but they may present a security risk to your company because hackers can get into them, and once they get into them, they can then get into you. We've seen that in the, the case of um, them using that remote software where you, you, know, you call up and somebody comes on your computer for a session and then gets back off. Well, that remote software has been hacked into, and because of that, they've been able to get into clients' networks. So finally, I would add, all employees of a company are responsible because employees are both a good first line of defense and also a source of attacks. You know, emails we just talked about coming in, somebody doesn't understand that this might be um, a phishing email and they click on a link and they release the extortion software into the system. So all employees of a company are also responsible for its cybersecurity. And one of the things I like to talk about is, is you know, cybersecurity is about the how we're protecting the data 
you know, and, and what data we need to protect is, you know, the second piece of it. So what confidential data, what, you know, business plans do we have to protect? What kind of personally identifiable information or health insurance information do we need to protect? So we need to understand what we need to protect and then we need to understand how to protect it. And everybody in a company is responsible for their part in that. I think that's very well said. I think all your points are really important, particularly as it relates to every employee. Obviously, it's important for stakeholders and leaders within an organization to be well-versed in what this area is all about and where the potential vulnerabilities lie, particularly in the context of the business that the organization is in. But I think it's critically important that what this is really about is awareness and making sure that you are focused, particularly when you are in situations where your organization's infrastructure network can be compromised to understand all the different ways that those threats can pose themselves. And I, th- I think it's not just about being aware in your work life, but also in your personal life that the ways in which People are trying to perpetrate frauds, particularly of the cyber type, just continue to evolve and they are more and more sophisticated. And you just need to make sure that you're aware of what you're doing in the moment and that you don't get caught unaware. I think that observation is probably, you know, at the heart of the people part of this is probably the most important piece, Christina, because again, if you use the metaphor of a high crime area, if you're in a part of, you know, Baltimore City where, you know, there's a lot of high crime, if you're in that area, you do things, right? You lock your doors, you lock your, you know, you have security systems, whatever, right? Because you you understand that this is an area where your assets or your person can be threatened, right? But when we talk about cyber, people just don't see that. And I think that's our opportunity to really help show and raise awareness about this because, they're in a high crime district. Absolutely. And you know, I'd like to share an anecdote with our listeners. Just this happened just yesterday that a friend of mine told me that they got a text message and it looked like a legitimate text message from their bank saying, we have received word or evidence that um, your account may have been compromised, your, your credit card account. So please call this phone number so that we can, you know, figure out next steps. And that was the gist of the message. Long story short, after about 20 minutes on hold with the credit card company and so forth, it was determined that this was not a legitimate text, that the phone number that was purportedly coming from my friend's bank, and it was the bank that my friend does business with, that it was not a text from the bank, The good news is my friend called the phone number on the back of their credit card and not the phone number in the text, but had they called the number in the text, they could have very easily compromised their bank information. So while this is not necessarily a cyber threat, maybe it is, maybe it's not, this is the type of evolution of, you know, fraudster activity that is happening and with a quick phone call that looks legitimate, you could end up compromising all your bank account information. Yeah, yeah. Good thing your friend called the number on the back of the card. That's quite a story. 
Yeah. So watch out. I mean, I've never had that happen to me before. I don't know if you've seen that before Libby, but um, you know, that's where, you know, I think people think that texts to their phone are different than emails and it's remarkable. People get your phone number in interesting ways and can perpetrate a fraud just as easily as sending emails to your work account. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's really a, a great observation. I mean, one of the things that we see is that here in the United States, we're really philosophically about entrepreneurship and brand new technologies and, you know, market, 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 and security is a secondary consideration, whereas over in Europe, they have a different view of the world. Security is more important and privacy is more important than brand new technologies coming out. And I think we're starting to see the evidence of that through examples like you just had where your your friend got this as a text message on her phone. So, you know, the mobile isn't secured so that um, we can reduce that exposure. Or we have, you know, the, the Internet of Things and we have baby monitors and other stuff with access to the Internet that doesn't have, uh, you know, adequate security. I mean, there's a lot of things in our lives now, both at work and at home, that expose us in ways that we never we have no idea it's happening. <laughs> so, you know, I think your point is really well met that awareness and focus is a, a really important thing for all of us, not just at a business level, but a personal level as well. So as we round out the beginning of our first segment together on this evolved topic, are there any models, frameworks, or roadmaps that we can provide to our listeners about ways to think about cybersecurity, taking into consideration everything that we've been discussing the past few minutes? Yeah, so this is a really interesting area. There are lots of different groups who are seeking to provide help and support to their constituents. And let me just give you an example. So we have governmental frameworks, we have industry frameworks, and then we have standards that outside uh, groups have created in which to try and evaluate the security posture of a given company. So some are models, some are roadmaps. And so, you know, let me just say, for example, in the insurance industry, we have Graham Leach Bliley, or, you know, we're going to have the California Consumer Protection Act that's coming out. So that's, those are examples of regulatory frameworks that the government have put out. Then we have sort of industry frameworks like payment card industry has a what they call a PCI compliance component. So they want to know that the merchants that are uh, using their cards are maintaining a certain security level in that transaction. Now, that's a very super specific type of cybersecurity model or framework because it's only the credit card portion of that entity's business. Um, but that is one example. HIPAA and HITEST are, are examples of industry frameworks in healthcare. You know, so we have we have that, and then we have standards, international standards. ISO has an international standard 27001 or 27002. These are standards that groups of you know people have come together and have said these are the types of things that companies need to be in place and. Someone has to come through and certify you that you are, in fact, in compliance with that. Another major one for your listeners is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. NIST is the acronym. 
NIST has taken the lead in the federal government to try and provide ways for businesses, critical infrastructure, and small business to look at their security posture and, and to try and create a roadmap for correcting that. So we'll provide a link to your listeners to that so they can take a look at that. But there's a lot of work being done in academia you know, and government to try and help the private sector in that. This is all really great information, and we're going to be delving more into what folks can do to protect themselves in this area in our next segment. In the meantime, do you have any final thoughts, and where can our listeners find you? Yeah, I think it's really important, Christina, that you're doing this and getting this awareness out to your community because we all we all need to be there to support each other and and to try and get secure. People certainly can reach me through LinkedIn. It's Libby Bennett, B-E-N-E-T, or at L Bennett at Assured, A-S-S-U-R-E-D dot enterprises. You can reach me in either place. Thank you very much, Libby. We really appreciate it and looking forward to the second part of our conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Paradigm Shift. I hope that you've enjoyed the first part of our discussion about cybersecurity with Libby Bennett. I'm your host, Christina Martini. Please look for our weekly episodes every Tuesday. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and recommend us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please visit us at www.paradigmshiftshow.com. We would love to hear from you. Please look for new episodes of Paradigm Shift every Tuesday.